millions of Americans are living with Alzheimer's disease or other dementias. As the size of the U.S. population aged 65 and older continues to grow, so too will the number and proportion of older adults living with Alzheimer's. It is important for aging services professionals to stay up to date on the latest facts and best practices. Most importantly, provide person-centered dementia care from early detection to diagnosis and medical management to providing information, education, and support. Hello, and welcome to the Comfort Connections podcast. In today's episode, Alzheimer's disease, facts, figures, and best practices, we are joined by Kristen Moore Bennett, Health Systems Director at the Alzheimer's Association, and Cindy Gray, Registered Nurse, Certified Dementia Practitioner, and owner of Comfort Care Home Care of the Greater Orlando Area. They will be sharing insights, resources, and best practice considerations for aging services professionals who provide care to older adults living with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. Welcome, Kristen and Cindy. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us. We're grateful to be here. Yes, thank you. Recently, the Alzheimer's Association released its latest 2023 report, Alzheimer's Disease, Facts and Figures. Kristen, can you please share some background on this report, its importance, and key considerations for aging services professionals? The the Alzheimer's Association Annual Facts and Figures Report has been published annually since 2007, and it's become the preeminent source of Alzheimer's issues and impact of Alzheimer's on individuals, families, government, and our nation's healthcare system. The 2023 Facts and Figures Report provides an in-depth look at the latest national and state-by-state statistics on Alzheimer's disease, prevalence, mortality, caregiving, and costs of care. And additionally, there's a special report this year that really examines the capacity of our um, healthcare workforce for diagnosing um, Alzheimer's and other related dementias. Thank you, Kristen. This report is a robust and informative document, especially when thinking about the relationship between Alzheimer's disease and its prevalence, mortality and morbidity, caregiving, workforce, and much more. With this in mind, could you share with our listeners what are some of the key updates and insights from the 2023 version of the report? I'm sure I would love to. Um, And when you say it's a robust report, it most certainly is. It's over 100 pages, and every detail you want, you can probably find in there from a state-by-state view, also nationally. But some of the most important things to think about are that um, over 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's currently. And by the year 2060, the 65-year-olds, 65-year-old plus will grow to 13.8 million if we don't have some sort of medical breakthrough. And additionally, more than 11 million caregivers of people with Alzheimer's or other dementia provided an estimated 18 billion hours of unpaid care, a contribution to the nation valued at more than 339.5 billion. And the lifetime risk at age 45 is one in five for women and one in 10 for men. You think the age 45, I don't understand. I thought this was an aging disease. Alzheimer's begins 20 years before any memory issues or other symptoms develop. It's important to invest in medical interventions and research as well as um, improving our healthcare system in terms of direct care workers, um, specialists and primary care physicians, 
et cetera. In the accompanying report, the patient, patient journey in an era of new treatment offers new insights from patient and primary care physicians, focus groups, on current barriers that impede earlier discussion of cognitive concerns. The report finds too often individuals with memory concerns and their doctors are not discussing this issue, meaning that the first critical step towards diagnosis and potential treatment is not happening. 93% of older adults believe cognition is an important part of normal aging, but only 40% of them would talk to their doctor. And 97% of physicians, primary care physicians, those that are not actually currently diagnosing it, report waiting for patients to make the, them aware of symptoms. And the PCPs report not having enough time during routine visits to perform thorough cognitive evaluations and say they're not entirely comfortable using existing assessment tools. Um, and 99% of the PCPs refer patients to specialists when they detect cognitive impairment. This then creates kind of a backlog of patients being waiting to see neurologists when they may not need to see a neurologist and the ones that really do need to see the neurologist or geriatrician do not get to see them. More than half of PCPs feel there, feel there is a shortage of specialists in this area. This is particularly evident in rural places and 20 of our US states are considered dementia neurology deserts which means that they have fewer than 10 neurologists available per 10,000 people in 2025. Bottom line though is 70% of Americans would wanna know early if they have Alzheimer's disease because the impact of early diagnosis affects their ability to plan for the future financially and for their care, obviously, and the ability to perhaps get into clinical trials and um, let their loved ones know what's important to them. Thanks so much for your insights, Kristen. For our listeners, we will include a link to the report under our podcast resources. Moving on to the topic of providing care and care transitions, Cindy, what are some transitions and care considerations for aging services professionals to relate to family members or an individual living with Alzheimer's? Okay, thank you. I look forward to sharing some of this information. Um, that was really awesome, Kristen. And it was um, it's interesting to note how robust this Alzheimer's disease facts and figures report really is. And a lot of the information that is so valuable um, inside of the report itself, it talks about proactive management through these transitions. And so to Kristen's point, um, the availability of appropriate treatment options is one of the first things you always have to consider. Um, you want to make sure you are always working with a professional who specializes in geriatrics and Alzheimer's and dementia. And as you heard, they're not that readily available. And a lot of times people aren't recognizing the fact that the professionals that they're using are not specialists in this area. And that is vital. So always make sure that wherever you or your loved ones are getting treatment are are places that specialize in not just geriatrics, but Alzheimer's and dementia memory disorders. Um, I'm in the Orlando market, for example, and it's not even readily available here. It took us a while as an organization to find the, the resources that we needed to recommend to our clients to get the proper care that they need. Um, once, once you have that, um, you also want to, um, do a lot of other things through, through all the transitions that are going to happen. 
Um, you have to, and some of this comes straight out of the Alzheimer's disease facts and figures. So get that, that article and read it because it's very, again, it's very robust. But one of the most important things is that families are provided and friends are provided with effective training that they can use to manage the day-to-day -day life of the person living with the disease. If you are not properly trained, your life will be very difficult. Um, so training makes a big difference. I say all the time, when you're looking for somebody to care and or work with your loved one, always make sure they have had training in the care of a person with Alzheimer's and or dementia. A lot of people, so of course, in my role as a home care provider, I interview people all day, every day to care for people in their homes. When they come in and they talk to me about taking on this role, my question is not, do you have experience? My question is, do you have training? I wanna know that they have been trained to care for these people. They can have all the experience in the world, but if they haven't been properly trained, what they do will not be effective. Their lives will be miserable and the client's lives will be miserable. I will hire somebody with a week's worth of training before I hire somebody with 10 years of experience with no training. I think that if you can take that away, that's a huge one. Of course, coordinating care amongst all the healthcare professionals is extremely important. Um, participation in activities that are meaningful to you and the individual living with dementia to keep purpose in your life as you go through these transitions is very valuable. Um, find activities in your community, find your support groups. Um, the biggest thing that you can do as well to keep a quality of life is get into music. If you're not already into music, bring music into your world. It can make a bad day good and it can keep a good day good. So always think of things like that. And those are things, if you go through the proper training, you'll learn about how music impacts the brain and the differences that it makes. Um, you always wanna maintain your sense of self-identity. Keep your relationships with people. It's very easy to get isolated as you go through this process and you really don't wanna get isolated. You're going to need support groups and friends and families to do everything you can do to keep those relationships going and to keep your own identity in place. You need to look for opportunities to connect with other people living with dementia. As I mentioned, things like support groups in communities, there are daycares, um, there are groups of people that get together to help you understand what some of your local resources are. Becoming educated about the disease, look for things like in Orlando, we have the Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center. That's a huge resource for us in addition to the Alzheimer's Association. There's no shortage of resources. Google needs to be your best friend. There is no shortage. Um, and of course, planning for the future. You're gonna have to plan for all these transitions for costs and resources. These are great recommendations for aging services professionals to relay to families and individuals and especially when thinking of care transitions. I understand that providers are leveraging technology to support care being delivered at home, senior living, and other care settings to support individuals living with memory loss or dementia. Can you please elaborate? Technology, as I think everybody probably knows, has come a really long way over the years. Back when I first started, as recent as eight years ago, we had buttons around our necks. You could push a button if you fell. You had to remember to push the button. We still see a lot of buttons out there with our clients. We also see clients who have the button on fall, never remember to push the button. 
So those have become almost obsolete for our population that we're talking about here today. There is a lot of other technology. Um, Comfort Care, for example, has a program called Connected Care. It is a very robust program that is installed into clients' homes. You know, you'll hear clients say, oh no, I don't want any video in my house. I've even had children say, no, I'm just not comfortable putting video in my parents' house. That was the technology of yesterday as well, believe it or not, video cameras, technology of yesterday. Now we have devices we can put in the home that senses that somebody's there. It's basically using a radar type system like the, like the um, air traffic controllers. So you can see that the person is there, but you can't see what they're doing necessarily. So it provides us with a lot of ability to track what they're doing throughout the day. If they're in their home, for example, um, it will track whether or not their routine trips to and from the kitchen are the same as they were last week or the time before, or are they even making a trip to the kitchen? Maybe they're not making trips to the kitchen any longer. And so now they're not eating. Those are things that can clue us in. That's pretty sophisticated stuff. Um, you can go all the way down to just having home technology that you put in front of you for learning purposes. You can look things up, you can train, um, learn more and more about the disease, any kind of disease or comorbidities that you're dealing with. You can get automatic medication reminders. You know, Again, this is a problem that we have to deal with. These clients are gonna forget to take their medications. One of the top reasons we get called into homes is because clients aren't remembering to take their medication and we're there just to remind them to take their medication. You can get automated devices that not only remind them, but let you know that it was taken. Um, you can of course have technology that just senses when the doors open and close. There's uh, really cool technology for people because they do get isolated. When they get isolated, sometimes they don't wanna go out into the world because they don't know how to manage certain behaviors. So they get isolated. There's technology now that we can bring virtual visits into their homes. So they have somebody that looks at them and talks to them on a um, iPad, communicates with them, gives them some socialization, including different types of activities they can get involved with. Um, it just goes on and on. It's crazy what kind of technology is out there and how far it has come. Um, again, the button, the video, all that is obsolete today. There's great new technology out there that's very reasonable. It's a great option even for people who might not be able to afford a caregiver, but they need additional monitoring for their client. They can use devices like this. It is wonderful that aging services professionals can leverage technology to support person-centered dementia care. As we near the end of this episode, Cindy, can you please share best practices and considerations for aging services professionals when developing a plan of care for individuals living with memory loss or Alzheimer's disease? I think um, the most important thing is some of the stuff I've already talked about, and basically it's becoming educated um, about these individuals who are living with the dementias. So many people don't know how to handle and manage the behaviors, for example. And if you take the time, it doesn't even take very much to read a little bit or go to a class or learn from somebody else who already knows some of the things that are beneficial in managing the behaviors so that you can help the client that, or patient that you're trying to place somewhere or do something with, you're able to, to be more effective with them, but also with their loved ones and their family and to be able to provide them with all the tools that are actually available. There's so many tools that probably becomes very overwhelming. But again, most importantly is to understand the disease process 
and to understand how different you have to handle it compared to other things. I was a brain injury nurse by background. And when I came into this, I didn't realize how different it is. You have to treat it. It's all the brain, but it's two totally different ways that you have to, to manage behaviors. So I, I think that's it is just to make sure you get the basic training you need. Kristen, please share a few additional best practice considerations that you share with physicians, nurses, case managers, and other aging services professionals, especially with your work through the Alzheimer's Association. So in my role as health systems director for the Alzheimer's Association, it is my job to uncover the gaps in care and uncover the gaps in to Cindy's point, training of our healthcare providers. Most doctors, when they go to medical school, um, don't get a ton of training on Alzheimer's and dementia. So there's plenty of programs out there that do training for them um, and do training for their staff. It's almost as important to, as to Cindy's point when she does training or when interviewing, training the staff to recognize when a patient comes in and they're agitated, it's not that they're necessarily being a jerk. It may be that they have other things going on and that it's just something to take note of and be able to treat them with respect, knowing the, the place that they are. So some of the things we do is work with primary care providers to look at their workflow and see how we can incorporate um, cognitive assessment in their workflow. I like to say to providers and everybody actually, um, that cognition is a vital sign. So when you go to the doctor, they have time to tell you about your BMI, your cholesterol, you know, um, diet and exercise. Cognition should be part of that, especially as that patient population starts to age. Some of the things we do training on with hospital health systems is we help them get the designation of an age-friendly health system as well as help with some emergency departments becoming geriatric emergency departments. Because if you think about it, when a patient goes to the emergency room, being put in there with everyone else isn't necessarily to their benefit. So again, let's say uh, Mrs. Smith's husband is acting out, so she takes him to the hospital. And at the hospital, he continues to act out. And the next thing you know, security's involved. And then he's being, you know, secured or being escorted out of the, the hospital. So it just, again, it's just so, so super important to acknowledge that this population needs to be treated differently and that, um, you know, the Alzheimer's Association is here to, as well as many other organizations to help them, help providers get the knowledge they need and, you know, even just evaluate how they're doing things so that they don't feel so burdened. Because, you know what, I get it. Primary care physicians are busy and there's not enough of them. If we don't get on board now, we're only going to get farther behind. Please share any closing thoughts for our listeners. Let's take away the stigma of aging, as well as the stigma of um, the aging brain and even dementias. The more we talk about it and the more that it is, no pun intended, top of mind, the more our, our legislators and our healthcare professionals are gonna pay attention. So advocate for yourself, advocate for your loved ones and talk about it. Thank you both so much for joining us today and sharing your insights with our listeners. Listeners, visit ComfortConnections.com to download complimentary resources, view show notes, and access our episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app. 
thank you for listening and helping older adults live the best life possible.